and welcome to another New Model Advisor podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Smith, and today I'm here to play you a conversation I recently had with a former MP turned ESG stalwart, Chuka Munna. Chuka could have been Prime Minister, you know, indeed, having thrown his hat into the ring for the Labour leadership in 2015, political onlookers everywhere were baffled by his sudden withdrawal from the race just days later. Munna spent the next four and a bit years in Parliament, making himself pretty unpopular with Labour's left-wing leadership and regularly publicly opposing the political positionings of Jeremy Corbyn throughout the EU referendum campaign and the subsequent general election that took place a year later. Indeed, it was Europe that proved his undoing, having switched allegiances to a new political party last year championing a reversal of Brexit. Amuna came unstuck and left after poor European election results and not a few political gaffes forced his hand and the groups too. He found solace in the arms of the Liberal Democrats standing in the City of London at last December's election but the game was unfortunately up. That was then, this is now, nearly a year on, Amuna has a new job as executive director at comms giant Edelman, where he is leading the company's ESG stewardship consultancy services. He rang me from the back of a taxi a few weeks ago to tell me a little bit more. I was never gonna be a lifer. And so I always wanted to return to capital markets and financial services. I just wasn't necessarily going to be the person who would determine exactly when that would be. That was always going to be electors. And so, no, I'm, I'm absolutely loving being back in the private sector. And, I'm, you know, the opportunity to build a new business line um, in strategy consulting, which is slightly different to the mainstay of Edelman's work as a communications firm as, uh, and, and across the Europe, Middle East and Africa has just been wonderful. So I'm very well in spite of the, the how awful COVID has been for so many people. But I feel I feel very lucky, I suppose, is what I'd say. Mm. So what have you discovered about the world of communications, perhaps, that you, I don't know, weren't expecting or perhaps has been a pleasant surprise or an unpleasant surprise? Well, to be honest, before I was elected, I'd worked for just under a decade as a corporate employment lawyer. Um, I started yeah. my, my legal career in the city. And so the environment is not dissimilar, to be frank. Um, I'm still a solicitor. I just don't practice. Um, but usually on you know, the deals that I worked on, you would have a mixture of uh, disciplines on it. And you'd have the lawyers. You would have the investment bankers. Sometimes you'd have accountants on it too. You'd, you'd often also have the communications professionals also. So it, it, it's been quite... Uh, it's like coming home in a way, I suppose. Uh, I think on the comm side, I, I, I actually think, as I said, I, the, the ESG consulting is a strategic consultancy within the Edelman family of businesses. And what we do is, I mean, we, we, we do do some of the communications work, but, you know, the main competitors for the work that we get mandates for are management consultancy firms. And the interesting thing I think about the ESG discipline is that it is a new professional services discipline and it can be done out of different contexts. So, um, you know, the management consultants have ESG units, the big four, their consulting arms, they do too. Um, We have our own consulting unit as, as the biggest communications firm in the world that does ESG. And then you also have some boutiques. So it's, it's a new and exciting space because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fast evolving. And uh, 10 years ago, when I first started as the Shadow Secretary of State for Business, prosecuting the whole responsible capitalism argument and agenda in the Commons, ESG was often conflated with um, CSR. And actually, 
it, it now is being taken f- far more seriously. Not that CSR isn't important. Absolutely. But you, you have people who are responsible for core parts of financial institutions, business, who are taking responsibility for ESG because it's so fundamental to corporate and investor decision-making. And I think increasingly for investors, it is seen as a proxy, not just for prudent risk management, but for good management. And so it's a really interesting area. And for me, what I mean, I I just, you know, it it gave me an ability to, to blend the experience I had leading public policy on ESG issues and looking at the role of business um, with my experience before that um, on the front line of dealing with the the S and the G part of ESG as a lawyer yeah. into something that 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 is tangible and um, is is you know corporate advisory in its nature, but what didn't require me to return to actually practicing law. I see, I see. So for Granny at home who might have no experience of this whatsoever, I mean our our audience is you know is an expert audience, but for Granny at home, I mean your you know your operations are ba- they're basically analyzing and informing clients about the performance of different companies and so on and so forth with ESG and effect trying to affect change, positive change um, yourself. Would that be a fair reflection? I think that's a fair reflection. I think I think what I would say to you know Joe Bloggs is that essentially what we do is advise companies on how to integrate environmental, social, and governance issues, mm. and in particular the interests of their customers, yeah. suppliers, employees, the local communities in which they operate, into the decisions that they make. And you know there is an overwhelming body of research that shows that it's not just an altruistic thing, it is actually good business to do that. Uh, Because if you don't look out for the other stakeholder interests, in the end, it is going to affect your market capitalization and your long-term value. Because that's where, you know, this, this, this is where your pension funds are invested. It's where your life savings often get located. And if something goes wrong in a big systemically important company, it's going to have a huge impact on communities. And, and that could be your son, your daughter, your your, your granny, your, your father, your mother. Sure. I mean, it's great that you mentioned the sort of pension side of things. We write a lot about pensions. Um, I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now. What did you think of, um, you know, Guy Opperman, the pension minister's um, piece on, you know, getting people to invest their auto-enrollment pensions sustainably? I mean, do you oh, feel do you feel that's part of the change? Oh, I, I think it's I think it's brilliant, and I think one of the good things about this area is there's not much party politics in it. If you look at the pensions bill, which is going through the House of Commons this week, um, the the opposition and government worked very closely on that uh, to produce content, which now means that uh, you know pension providers of a particular size will have to take into account. Uh, the TCFD um, framework and disclose what they are doing in that regard. So I think it's a a big step forward because the long and the short of it is, you know, I'm I'm a capitalist, but there are different varieties of capitalism. And the, the model that we've had over the last two to three decades has not benefited enough people. Now, if you believe that ultimately this system, instead of a kind of command control ultra-socialist model is going to produce more prosperity for more people, then you've got to make sure that we have a better model that delivers for more people. 
Mm. And the allocation of capital isn't something that can just be directed by government. Mm. Um, if we are to reach the, you know, the official commitment of getting to net zero by 2050, the yeah. Treasury was forecasting before the pandemic that that would require, in the UK alone, a trillion pounds worth of investment. Mm. Uh, that's around 70 billion pounds investment greening the economy every year. Now, you, you, that's not something government alone is going to be able to do. Um, you need the private sector to step up and work in partnership with the state to, retro, you know, to basically reform the economy so that we have the right capital going into greening the economy and infrastructure and what have you. So the way pension funds, you know, pension funds are invested is an absolute vital part of that. One, uh, just one sort of devil's advocate question for you, just thinking about yeah. Joe Bloggs. I mean, we, you know, we cover a lot about scams, you know, I'm sure that there's a bit very live issue, lots of people be doing that. But one thing that I'm concerned about is risk. So I envisage this situation where, you know, Joe Bloggs sees this advert, he wants to invest his pension money sustainably, and he perhaps sees an advert for, you know, an infrastructural project fund that's going to put money into developing countries, diversified, of course, but into a set of projects that is, you know, ostensibly higher risk than, say, your traditional mix of equities, bonds, and, um, you know, fixed income products. And I, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that the, the policy sphere has thrashed out the risks of the public yet. I just wanted to get your um, your thoughts on how the framework for that should work when it comes to communicating what, you know, perhaps less financially educated people can do with their money. I think actually, well, one is communication, the other is good regulation. I don't think that impact investing uh, necessi necessitates you taking on greater risk. And mm. actually, what the pandemic has shown is that corporates you know corporate issuers with good esg profiles have proven to be much more resilient yeah. and uh, that you know this is what client you know we represent probably more asset managers uh in terms of total assets under management than any uh, you know most of the strategy and communications firms mm -hmm. and all the that's what on the whole they're telling us is that the corporates they're invested in with good ESG profiles are the ones who looked ahead, planned for different scenarios uh, and, and prepared for shocks better than others. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, they are lower risk than um, many companies with bad ESG profiles, which don't look to the long term and, and are much more focused on, on, on the short term and the fast buck. Yeah. Um, let's just come on to the issue of you know, asset managers. You mentioned asset managers, but also funds. I think... I could quite comfortably divide our audience for ESG into two camps. I'd say that you have your optimistic amateurs who are new to the process and they're looking for thought leadership and uh, advice themselves about how to do ESG really, really well. But you then have um, some quite seasoned experts who've been doing it for 10, sometimes 20 years and are really quite, um, you know, it's sort of their hobby actually that they do for a day job. Um, now, I think the, the latter camp is actually quite sceptical about the ESG fund world, and in particular, the way in which you know, asset managers and fund houses have cottoned on to the popularity of ESG. 
Um, and they sort of they're wary about greenwashing and all of this and all of that. I just wanted to get your sense, Chucker, of you know how much progress has actually been made uh, on ESG and by ESG, I mean good ESG funds by these asset managers. You know, are you confident in the sector's ability to deliver genuine ethical fund propositions? I think there are two aspects to it. So one is overall volumes, and mm. uh, I think it's a good thing that we've seen record green you know, green bond issuance, um, because, you know, we, as I said, we need the reallocation of capital to help green our economies globally. Uh, and so I think the, the, the increase in, in, in volumes going to sustainable and, you know, ESG funds is very much to be welcomed. Mm. Do we need um, to guard against greenwashing and sort out the standards and uh, frameworks that apply? Um, yes, I think it's really welcome what the, the EU is trying to do with the taxonomy, um, you know, to ensure that those that are genuine green projects and businesses are, are what they say on the tin. Mm. Um, I, I'm a bit concerned, and, and certainly a lot of our clients um, who are in this area are concerned, is that it doesn't account, the taxonomy doesn't take into account sufficiently projects where you're, say, taking... Uh, a, a you know brownfield project or brown building and then greening it mm. and facilitating transition um uh, the, the taxonomy tends to be much more focused on you know if you're green or not whether you're knocking down a building and putting up something new in its place that is green as opposed to what you know how transition is facilitated mm. and so i think classifications and disclosure requirements are absolutely key to help guard against greenwashing and uh you know a, a watering down of what is actually happening um so I, I think it's welcome i think it's a massive step forward where we are to anywhere here on the left please actually i'm just sorry i'm just gonna hop out of this car and then you'll be able to hear me better because i won't have my mask on no problem um do you think part of that framework should include you know means to basically improve fund managers ability to spot you know, bad eggs. I'm referring specifically to, you know, Wirecard and the extensive fraud that seems to have slipped under the radar of, you know, big accountancy firms. You know, there may be something worth worse afoot there, but let's just call it that. But also things like Boohoo, where it's sort of supply chain issues specifically and modern slavery. It seems that, you know, there are a couple of ESG funds out there that are just completely missed. that. that well, in, yeah, well, I think there's two things that come out of that. Uh, uh, Boo Boohoo's illustrative in some senses of how you, sh you shouldn't rely on ESG ratings, agencies, research yeah. alone, and that you need good stewardship. Um, and, and secondly, the other thing is, is, is that you, in, in some situations, without referring specifically to Boohoo, just because they haven't picked up on things, it doesn't mean that there's been bad stewardship. I mean, it seems in the case of Wirecard, and we'll find out, that there was, you know, fraud and lying happening on an industrial scale. And whatever, you know, stewardship or, or framework you apply, if somebody's just going to break the law and lie and act in a criminal fashion, it's quite hard sometimes to pick up on these things. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, I, I think Boohoo just shows that, you know, you can rely in some senses on AI and scraping data mm -hmm. to, to some extent, but you have to do the hard yards in terms of the, the desk work and engagement with the company to really get to the bottom of what is going on. 
Yeah. Um, got two more questions for you. The first one's about diversity. I mean, you may have seen that LNG, you're obviously a huge name in not only the general insurance and sort of pension world, but also the asset manager, you know, Elgin. They'd issued a threat to sort of FTSE 100 companies regarding their own diversity. But it struck us that, you know, LNG is a company, you know, whilst it has quite good gender diversity relative to other competitors on its, you know, on its table. Um, you know, it, it's it's lacking, you know, it's lacking ethnic minorities, it's lacking people of colour. And I want to ask you about, you know, does that pose a bit of a, you know, is that a bit of a, a um, is a bit of a problem for companies that want to enact change is that they're doing it at the same time as they're having to change themselves? What do you think yeah. about that? Well, I, th- I mean, um, uh, it's worth actually, I, I don't know how much time you've got before you write the copy, but this ca- this was a big talking point at the webinar this morning, because obviously, yes, yeah. you know, we have a pretty diverse range of people for the city, really. Um, and um, I think, you know, the, the, the investors on that, um, Sheila Patel from Goldman Sachs and um, Saka and the Sabre, now obviously the three of us, we're, we're of colour, but they, they said absolutely that, you know, they do make these demands of... Um, the companies they're invested in, but they are absolutely well aware that um, uh, asset managers, the buy side, have got to get their own house in order if they're going to make all these demands of, of, of corporates. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, just, I suppose, if, if the question is, if they haven't got their own house in order, does that disqualify them from taking action to help bring about change in other companies as well as sorting out their own backyard? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it should preclude them from making demands of their corporates. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a problem if they are sitting on their hands and not doing anything about their own performance on that in that mm-hmm. regard. But I, I really welcome, actually, what um, El Jim said this week. I think it's a good thing. And yeah. I don't think the fact that they're, 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 not, they're not, you know, perfect themselves should stand in the way of them trying to bring about change, not only in their own backyard, but in 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 um, the investment industry generally, and I think so long as so long as the 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 firm is honest about its own failings, um, I don't have a problem with that. Where I have a problem with it is is where they 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 don't fess up to their own you know their own shortcomings. Mm. Okay, Do, are you supportive of sort of further efforts to increase transparency with you know diversity reporting? You know, we've got absolutely reporting. Absolutely. I mean, it, yes. I mean, this is. I mean, I'm not talking this isn't necessarily a corporate point of view, but um, very progressive, um, family-run firm. Richard Edelman's been very outspoken about these issues. Hmm. So I, I don't think I'm necessarily speaking. It's a personal view, but I'd be surprised if anyone disagreed with me at Edelman. But yeah, no, I'm absolutely, absolutely for diversity reporting, and then lots of really great, you know, initiatives. Um, Jonathan Sorrells, um, and the the team's 100 Black interns. Um, uh, campaign, I think, is absolutely brilliant. I'm a very strong supporter of it. Okay, interesting. Um, final question. I'll just stick with the topic of LGM as the segue. We we had a conversation that we um, recorded as part of a podcast with um, one of their the, the director of steward stewardship at LGM, and um, one of the most interesting things that he said was that it was not for LGM's stewardship team to try and order companies, you know, about during the pandemic, particularly those that are laying off staff or furloughing. Um, it couldn't. He basically said, you know, get 
too involved in telling them how to run their own company. But, you know, on the other hand, you wanted to see good examples of how, you know, companies were, and particularly executive boards, were shouldering some of the pain themselves while furloughing or laying people off. I just wondered what your stance was from an ethical, you know, social governance perspective about, you know, redundancy, unemployment, and, uh, you know, what constitutes good behaviour on the part of big companies. I wouldn't want to uh, comment on the commercial decision to furlough or um, make staff redundant or cut pay and hours because I think essentially that is the executive of each company. Mm. Um, but I think the way that you do these things, and you know, I'm speaking as a former employment lawyer here, it's really important that you follow the right processes um, and that you communicate with your staff. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that uh, corporate communications has been, you know, we, we have been busier than ever in this space is because people, uh, you know, and companies and our clients have really been keen to get communication right with their employees, particularly when so many people are working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I always say that um, when it comes to communicating with your employees in, in the context of COVID, um, you can't really do too much of it. Mm, okay. Does that come down to, you know, basically honest conversations where companies are... I think, you've, I think it's, it's absolutely that. And, and certainly, I mean, I, I always found um, during my time as a corporate employment lawyer that in a way, the more you shared the situation and the context behind your decisions with employees, the better... It's not to say that there won't be disquiet and, of course, huge worry and disappointment if you're at risk of losing your job. But if people understand the context in which you're making that decision and can see that there be, there's a fair process, then it, it, is a, it makes the whole um, situation easier for all involved. Um, where, where you withhold information unnecessarily, I think that's when you can really run into even bigger problems. Yeah. Um, final, final, final question. Who's your hero in this regard? You know, who who do you really admire, you know, in the sort of corporate communications, stewardship, ESG? Well, I have to say, yeah, I mean, um, well, there's lots of uh, uh, there's lots of um, examples, I suppose, you, you could give. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily want to pick one kind of uh, example of stewardship because we, we act for, um, you know, firms of over $10 trillion of assets under, under management who... I, I, you know, I haven't, I have yet to see bad stewardship amongst our clients. Mm. It's something they take very seriously. So I wouldn't want to necessarily pick out one. Um, I think on the corporate side, actually, one of the best pieces of communication I've seen through the crisis was the memo that was sent out by the head of Airbnb to um, his employees about why they were going to have to let people go. Um, and it has been widely reported and talked about, but it really is, it really was excellent, I thought. 